out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the muffs because I recently spoke to their bass player, Ronnie Burnett, to find out more about life life, love and poetry and everything else. So this is the interview and as you, I won't give you any more details about the muffs, I think you probably know or you're about to find out, so let's face it, this is all good stuff. Um, yeah, so after several minutes of casual chat, which gets edited out, we get down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. It's a great place to start, come on, let's face it. Anyway, Ronnie, it's over to you. I'm a, I'm a year behind you, David. So I was born in 1965. So uh, the first thing I remember, well, the first thing I remember was uh, my mother took me to see Elvis Presley when I was five in the uh, Houston Astrodome. I'm from Houston, Texas originally. Um, and I was five. So I, I don't remember specifics really about the music. Uh, I remember all the flash bulbs going off and I remember people were very excited. Um, and um, two years later, when I was seven, in 1972, I saw Elvis again. So, so by the time I was seven, I saw Elvis twice. Um, wow. But... So where was the second time? The second one was uh, uh, in a place called Hoffines Pavilion in Houston, Texas. Again, mm-hmm. a, a smaller place. Um, the Astrodome was... Um, when you see people that, like, say they headline the Astrodome, they basically played... Um, they were guests at the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo. Um, <laughs> they didn't. They didn't sell the Astrodome necessarily on their own merits. Um, it was part of a rodeo. But yeah, that's what Elvis. That, that's where he did the first time. And then, yeah, smaller place. But um, yeah. Also, uh, so around '72, I still like the Partridge Family, or still I like the Partridge Family. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wanted more Partridge Family records. My mother gave me some money, and sent me with my older brother to the record store, and my older brother said you don't want those Partridge family records, uh, buy these. And he handed me Frank Zappa's apostrophe and Cheech and Chong's Big Bamboo, um, which obviously were records he wanted, but I walked out with those records. And so those are my first two records, um, which may or may not say a lot about me. I'm not sure. Well, Um, it's kind of interesting mix there, really. Yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, the first record I remember buying on my own was um, the Golden Earrings Radar Love 7-inch. Uh, which I think is like 74. Yeah. So. Yeah. So you, how old was your older brother, by the way? How much older? Um, I had four older brothers. Um, so they, they were all, one was, you know, uh, eight years older. I mean, the, the one nearest in age to me was, was like three years older than me. So they were all, they didn't pay much attention to me, but, but I did in that same brother's room. That's where I saw like the Black Sabbath Paranoid album cover, which used to horrify me. Um, I'm sure I would have been scared at the first Black Sabbath record cover had he had that one um, as well. And then he went, I remember him going to see Alice Cooper and telling me about all the, the stabbing the baby and, and, and all that stuff. And I remember, again, being just scared out of my wits and wondering about this Alice Cooper fellow. And I would steal his copy of Schools Out and make it into that desk that it, that it folded into. Yes. And uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, so 
that's, that was, that's uh, my that's earliest i was i was the the third of three boys and there was a bit of a gap there was you know two odd seven years and five years and then there was this little bit of an afterthought i think they were trying for a girl actually and they got me lucky <laughs> for them but i had my i i idolized my older brother and and that period the, the 70s was his decade he was really into prog rock like yes genesis wishbone ash barkley james harvest but he also had deep purple <laughs> I don't know, Fireball or Burn. And you also had the double kind of Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath albums and uh, or album, a kind of compilation. Ah. And, uh, and, and also there was also Sgt. Pepper um, by the Beatles and, and Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. And this was all kind of like quite early mid seventies. And I just, you know, looking back thinking, God, the Beatles had only just broken up then, but from, for a young person, ah. they just seemed like, I don't know, Cliff Richard, I suppose, or, you know, <laughs> Eliza had only broken up three or four years ago, but it seemed like, yeah, they'd been and gone. Just, so don't worry about no, it. No, no, absolutely. And we also can't uh, discount the importance of FM radio back in the 70s. I mean, um, my, my FM radio station played, um, as well as like commercial stuff, would play long, you know, I remember waking every morning waking up for school and hearing a roundabout by Yes, for whatever reason, that was played at like seven in the morning, every, every morning. But um, Wow, you that's know, very yeah, good. They, they, They'd play long tracks. I, I remember they would break albums, so they'd play like, you know, Led Zeppelin's Presence is coming out, and they'd play the whole album, and, you know, you'd record it. Because yeah, in, so. in the UK, we had obviously Radio 1, which was massive, and it had this kind of, they were the gatekeepers of popular music. There was no other alternative, really. And then we had Radio 2, and that was the light, kind of very easy listening music, which, you know, uh. was just like, I don't know. It was it, Burley. You know, my mum used to play. I suppose when in the kitchen when I was very young, and and so I have got a love for Burt Backrack and um, the Carpenters and and sort of certain soft. You know, Roger Whittaker. I think is brilliant. Yes, <laughs> Design, David. Do you know the English band Design? No. Oh, oh, you got to look them up. Design. They, uh, design. They were uh, they wore matching outfits and they 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 ended up on the cabaret circuit, but they. Uh, they just re-released their first album, and it's a really wonderful, uh, like soft pop, like masterpiece. I think so. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I know it yeah. was when when was it the Sonic Youth did a compilation. If I was a carpenter, and they there was that sort of yeah. all those New York bands. That, well, there's also the Cranberries who did a cover of a beat, you know, the Carpenters. And I thought, oh, yeah. yes, I've always loved them. You know, I've always loved the Carpenters. <laughs> I love Rainy Days and Mondays. And I I think if you like the Carpenters, you're definitely going to like. Joy Division and the Smiths, because frankly, the lyrics are there with Morrissey and Ian Curtis. That's my theory. <laughs> no, I can see that. I can you know, see that. And, and I still think Roger Whittaker has a sort of a sadness in his, a melancholia, which I love. Romantic melancholia is kind of my go-to state, my bit. So then, so you were born in, you were in Austin during the 70s. So Houston. Houston. Houston, right. And yeah. then as the 70s progressed, because I completely miss punk, let's face it, we were both too young, weren't we? So, well, I, I, I was lucky enough to, uh, I, I always hung out with older people. I guess maybe having the older brothers, I always hung out with older people. Like uh, one of my best friends was the son of my mom's best friend who was older than me. And for him to save face, we used to say I was his cousin, you know, not his, not his friend that was like four years younger. But um, all these people introduced me to, to everything from, from prog rock bands, like you mentioned, to like rush to like craft. I remember they had a Kraftwerk Autobahn cassette for some reason and then punk came around and they were in the punk and by 19 uh god I got it and you know at a young age I was 
I had, a, I had a family friend give me a collection of Cream magazines uh, when I was 10 in 1975. And that basically raised me. Um, and I saw, I looked at all those ads and I, I fell in love with Kiss. And I uh, remember begging my parents to take me to see Kiss, which they did when I was 11. And um, <laughs> after that, I started just wanting to go to concerts. So I, I started really young. Um, I remember I saw ZZ Top at age 11. And uh, I, I hate to admit this on, you know, on the show, David, but to my earliest memory of smoking pot um, at age 11 at ZZ Top in, in Houston, Texas. Um, well, that's fantastic. But anyway. <laughs> well, interesting enough, I did an interview with Colin Bluntstone from The Zombies, and he, this last week, because they're doing some various bits, and he mentioned mm -hmm. that when they broke up after their classic album, um, Oracle and Odyssey, Odyssey and Oracle, um, there was yeah. various bands, because suddenly they became popular, but there was no band. And then there was a few yeah. pretend zombie bands that appeared. Yes. Oh, okay. And actually, one of them featured two members of ZC Top, I think. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's um, right. The zombies hit it big right when they broke up. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, and some yeah. promoter said, oh, actually, we, it doesn't matter. We'll just go and uh, just put this band together and we'll just go out as the zombies. And apparently a very, yeah. So Colin Bluntstone then told me that a very obsessed fan went into the changing rooms with a gun and said, stop doing this now. Otherwise, I'm going to shoot you. And they went, OK, that's that's the end of us pretending <laughs> to be the zombies. So that's what Colin Bluntstone wow. told me. So, wow. Yeah. No, I'm getting back to punk, though. So, so punk rolled around. I was aware of it. I was reading the press and everything. And um, I remember buying tickets to see The Clash for the first time through Texas. This was 79. Um, on the tour after Give Him Enough Rope, but before London Calling. Um, the tour where that, that cover photo with Paul Simonon was taken. Um, yeah. I bought tickets, and my, the, the same older brother I was talking about um, was going to take me. I had to get rides to shows, obviously, back then. And, um, and when the day of the show, I will never let him live this down, uh, the bill was The Clash, Joe Ely, and a local punk band called Legionnaire's Disease. And my brother had heard that the singer of Legionnaire's Disease would jack off on stage so he was like, I'm not taking you to this. I screw that punk stuff. And I still have the full tickets. I remember crying like a baby. Um, so he did not take me. But um, that said, around 1980, when I was 15, I learned that I could get into clubs. So I got into punk clubs in Houston. And as you probably know, David, uh, Texas had a great punk scene uh, that was just going at that time with a, with a, in Houston, we had Really Red and the My Dolls. Austin had the Big Boys and the Dicks, and uh, you know all sorts, all sorts of great bands. So, so I was lucky enough, and the and the people running clubs were lax enough to let me in these places, and I had the older friends to take me to them. So I, I actually got to see a lot of great bands, and and actually take in that era. So. My God, that was such a good education, wasn't it? And were you kind I, of I aware of that kind of next period of the post punk world of like, I don't know, Gang of Four magazine, um, I suppose Joy Division, people like that, and then, then the Nightingales and Marky Smith and the Fall. Were you, were you sort of seeing that kind of change come in as well? Oh, absolutely. No, no, absolutely. I was buying that stuff too. I mean, there was nothing greater than going to a record store then uh, that would have imports. And there would just, every week, there would be just an avalanche of new great releases. I mean, uh, it, it, I'm, I feel so lucky to have been there. And yeah, I, I saw Gang of Four on their first album tour at a club called Spit in Houston. I was 16 or whatever. I think that would have been 81. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. No, I, I saw Ultravox on the Vienna tour in a club. I, I, 
I, you know, people probably don't believe me because um, <laughs> I had such great experiences. But, well, to be honest, you, yeah, saw no, El- I, you saw Elvis twice when you were black. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's true. No, and um, I mean, it makes the game of four look a bit, yeah. you know, fuck. <laughs> no, no, no. And that led to uh, uh, my the first band I was ever in was uh, when I was a sophomore in high school. It was with a government teacher at my high school and his brother. Again, older people influenced me. And we played our high school talent show when I was a sophomore. And we played I Found That Essence Rare by Gang of Four. We played Mannequin by Wire. Um, what else did we do? We did a kink song. You know, but but to, to put it in perspective, the other band at this talent show played 38 Special. And, you know, <laughs> it, it was very different. And we didn't go over that well. But, yeah, I, I you know, yes. I learned playing. Yeah, the first song I learned how to play on bass was It's Too Bad by The Jam. A nice. dumbed down version because it's a fancy bass line. But yeah, yeah, that's so I I grew up on all that show. I saw the jam on the Setting Suns tour in 1980 in a club. Um, you know, so I I again you yeah. you, you that basically, yes. I don't think I've ever met anybody who's seen so many bands and such such an amazing CV, actually. That's kind of a you've topped everyone. I still, you know. Uh. Still, I got the ticket stubs, David. I, I can prove this. <laughs> I completely, yeah. I mean, you would not many people would want to make those stories up, really, because you would look great. But then, so That's yeah. True. So when did you decide, you know, to try and play an instrument? Yeah. What happened was I was, um, I was hanging around the local record store. Uh, this is like age fourteen. It was called Southwest Records, and I became friendly with the manager. And he would like, again, another guy that didn't like anything punky. Um, so he would give me the punky uh promo records you know and i'd sweep up and help help around the store so he played bass um so he influenced me and he was into you know texas also had this very vibrant blues scene um people probably don't realize it like the fabulous thunderbirds the original lineup was an amazing band they were not the commercial tough enough group you know Mm. uh you know and all these people you know i you know, when I saw Stevie Ray Vaughan for the first time, I was like, oh, that's Jimmy Vaughan's brother who plays a lot of notes and plays the same scales really fast. Um, <laughs> I didn't get it at first. I get it now. But anyway, this manager, his name was Scott. He influenced me to ask my parents for a bass. So my father gave me a bass uh, in 1978. Um, and it's the, it was a Fender Precision bass. And it's the same bass I played through my whole career. I never found a better one. I like mated for life with that. So so yeah, I was given a bass, and kids don't ask for basses. You know, kids ask for guitars or drums. Um, nobody grows up wanting to pay, play bass. And in, in, in fact, uh, my parents got me bass lessons. And after the first lesson, they're like, you should get him a guitar. And uh, they got me an acoustic guitar. But what happened was I met those, I met that government teacher I talked about that, that, that was my first band at that record store, told him I had a bass. And basically those guys took me in and, and that's how I learned to play. I, I learned like, I got in that band and, and, and Wayne, uh, the guitar player, um, uh, the teacher's brother taught me, he taught me that jam song. He taught me that, that gang of forest song, you know, and, um, that's how well, I learned. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Cause, cause Lemmy from Motorhead, I mean, he went, you know, he, I mean, the story is that he was at school and he saw some kid with a guitar and all these girls around him and he went, right, that's it. I can, I can, I can work this out at a very young age and just walked yeah. around with a guitar and went, Hey, it does work. And then, sort of he wasn't very good guitarist with the rock and vicky vickers and then sort of i think he got the gig with hawkwind and i think um just stayed with that and then obviously got kicked out of hawkwind then formed motorhead so the bass player you know and there was another guy god who's his name i can't it's not joel wobble but somebody who's 
a serious bass player who who said that you know he picked it up quite not easily but it was quite straightforward well that's the thing it, it, bass is like the easiest to kind of learn but uh, as they say easy to learn hard to master and it's kind of true you got to have you know yeah yeah you're just playing one note or whatever at a time but um you know you got to have a feel you gotta you gotta you know and 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 as far as my playing i'm, I'm basically all feel i'm not you know i'm not playing fancy I, i'm not looking to stick out you know i i think if you don't notice the bass you're doing a good job you know? <laughs> yeah <laughs> unless it's something like unless it's something like jaw wobble where where bass is like the, the whole public image is based on that bass right like, yes and then there was the I suppose, music. and then we all remember john entwistle as well and thinking my God. no no, no, growing up, John, I mean, John Entwistle is like everyone's favorite bass player and no one plays like him, right? Like, it's like... <laughs> yeah. yeah. So when you yeah. hear people like, say, going back to Lenny, when you hear his bass, did you think, oh, yeah, I can work out how he makes that sound? Or is it just one of those, God knows? No, it's more like, how does he get that sound? I mean, I mean, uh, even a bigger uh, influence sound-wise like that is is J.J. Burnell, The Stranglers. I mean, that that is the ultimate bass sound to me. Um love the stranglers and um yeah and, and that's kind of in the i guess it's kind of similar to lemmy's bass sound in a way it's distorted and stuff but uh yes. yeah yeah i don't know i have no idea how those guys get that sound amazing, <laughs> now i'm sure there's a fancy pedal that'll do it but yeah i don't know how they did it back then yeah so during the 80s in the uk anyway you know we you know 79 thatcher gets in and then in the early 80s you know there's a huge amount of unemployment and a lot of the indie bands are sort of unemployed and they there's various government schemes that people could go on, like the government, you know, enterprise allowance and and such, you know, things, which basically got people off the dole. But they they would have often a year of just being able to sort of get some dole money, housing benefit, council tax paid, and so they spent that year sort of getting drunk, smoking a bit, and forming bands. And there's a lot of indie bands that got sort of like that was their kind of beginning apprenticeship, really. And we also in this country had those kind of gatekeepers, like we had John Peel and we had three weekly music papers, which was um, you know, obviously very mm -hmm. exciting. And every city and town in the UK has an alternative indie night. And you know that the UK is like tiny little place. So, you know, yes. you can get that traction quite quickly. So how did your kind of 80s develop being sort of in sort of America? Um, well, you know, I was, I, was, I was reading all those English mags too, um, you know. Um, and like you say, you can you can ascend very quickly in England, but you also uh, they get rid of you quicker too, right? Like a like menswear or something. Um, <laughs> who who have a box set? Believe it or not, there's a menswear box set. I'm blown away by that. Anyway, um, uh, yeah, the '80s. You know, I was still I was still paying attention, but but you know, um, I gotta say the gold the golden age kind of ended about '82. Um, you know, as the, as the 80s progressed, you know, that the records got more synthetic and, 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 um, and everyone, everyone made a bad, made bad rec 80s sounding records, you know, Bob Dylan, um, um, you know. Yes, so, well, but, so, the, but, but yeah. the, just to say, that's an interesting point, because I've often, I've thought back at that. And obviously, we had that Trevor Horn production, and we had, you know, I don't know, Dire Straits and Duran Duran and Spandau Belly. But I think the artists who really, really struggled were the ones who had done it in another decade, like, say, David Bowie. Let's Dance is all right. But then the next two, there's yeah. Robert Plant, there was Rod Stewart, and all these people who've oh, yeah. done some pretty good stuff. They get into the 80s, and frankly, that, that work during that decade, you know, and there's probably other bands, they just were like, for once in their life, apart from getting terrible haircuts and probably going for a bit of a mullet, 
you know, they, they, they just, <laughs> instead of trying to sort of just go with a creative flow, they, they sort of got the, you know, the, the producer of the day, they tried to get that sound and it just sounds yeah. embarrassing and it's interesting. But then you have the alternative scene and, and as you notice from that post-punk, then we get into the indie world and 83 was the yeah. Smiths appeared and the Smiths were like, oh, this is interesting. And they, they were the kind of band, I suppose, at that moment who took the baton and then we had all those, uh, you know, like the June Brides and the, the go-betweens from from Australia. And, and then sort of like a billion other little bands and labels started to appear like Creation Records and Vindaloo Records and Glass Records and Native Records and, and the Pink Label, all these kind of very cheap and cheerful indie bands yes. like that. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And then Cherry Red does a sort of, a C, you know, three CD box set of C86 and then they go up to C90 as well you know, with 66 tracks. So there was that kind of scene, yeah. but they, you know, then you had, you know, like the mainstream stuff. So, yeah, so with your age no. in America, yeah. you had hair metal though, so you trumped it all. Well, yeah, well, hair metal was a little, uh, you know what, you know what got, you know what got us through the 80s is, is the uh, jangle pop thing. R R REM was hugely important. And um, and I loved art, you know, early REM and Let's Active and, and, and all those bands from North Carolina and, and, you know, Pylon. I mean, there were, there were, there was, there was some great bands in the eighties. I mean, there was at three o'clock, you know, there's a whole Paisley underground thing. I loved all those bands, Rain Parade, Dream Syndicate, um, three o'clock. I love Jason and the Scorchers um, from England, the Godfathers. I mean, there was good stuff, um, yes. you know, and then, uh, yeah, toward, and towards the later eighties, I mean, and, and not, and, and of course the C86 scene, as you said, that whole, Indeed. And then we had the goth scene yeah. as well, like, you know, anybody kind of, I mean, I know it's a bit of a, everyone says, no, I wasn't part of the goth scene, but then you went, well, you do, you do look a bit like a goth, don't you? Like the cute, well, yeah. cult, you know, <laughs> alien sex scene, all those kind oh, of yeah. things, like all about Eve and... and Specimen. Specimen, <laughs> yes. <laughs> they probably got a box set as well. So there was a, you know, they, they did go for the Bat Cave, didn't they? So, and Nick Cave yeah. and all that bunch. So there was kind of these funny little scenes. So what was it like in your hometown during that period? Um, well, uh, locally, uh, you know, uh, you know, in the 80s, um, that scene in Austin, you know, there were some good bands in Houston as well, but but Austin had that scene with, um, you know, Zeitgeist, who became the Reavers, and, and Daniel Johnston, and Glass Eye, and um, these are all great bands, uh, Doctors Mob, um, you know, that, that was quite a, like right after R.E.M., Kind of got the ball rolling for all those kind of bands um yeah austin had that great scene so so there was actually a lot well, you had the b-52s didn't they well they had the b-52s yeah oh yeah no no i'm you know the thing about the b-52s in that era we're going we're going slightly back now but um you know everyone all these bands formed and they had the sound that was like fully formed and realized like when i listen to the b-52s first record it it amazes me that they came up with that you know what I mean? Like they're probably together two years. They came up with this hugely original sound and like these weird songs and they're arranged weird and they have weird parts and somehow it all works. And, and they have like this strange singing and, and <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Are amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're unbelievable. But so. then you had the bands like the Wall of Voodoo as well, didn't you? Which was. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, Wall of Voodoo, unbelievable. I mean, they had. I don't know if you ever saw them live. I didn't realize I saw them live. They have that beatbox going, that pulse all the time. And then their drummer, if you will, 
would sit there and smoke and just add stuff like psh, hit symbols or like ba ba like and then he'd smoke Joe Nanini yeah Wall of Voodoo is, I love that band thanks for bringing yeah. them up Mexican radio <laughs> if you listen to that you know it still blows your mind actually absolutely amazing and funny enough managed all they were on IRS records who was Miles Copeland's label love IRS records yeah yeah big fan who won um, yes <laughs> yeah yeah well he managed the you know he did well he was well the interesting thing with miles when he was very young he managed wishbone ash for a very short time then he did a tour oh, yeah. with um lou reed which was a disaster because lou was in the toilet for three days and he never came out so he went bust then he started booking these punk bands from london and was quite organized and then started you know the police and then you know i irs records so it's quite, quite yeah yeah we had a I'm jumping ahead, but we had a meeting with uh, with Ian Copeland when we were getting wooed after our band got signed, but we'll get to that later. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So you were still, but throughout the 80s, we had Reagan. No, we, you had Reagan. We had Thatcher. Um, so what was it sort of like? Because you still hadn't sort of formed the band, the band, had you, by then? No, no, no. I, um, I... I as I mentioned, I was in, I was in that, that band in high school. I, I was in two bands when I was in high school. And basically, I put the bass down uh, after, I, after I got out of high school. I was never, and still am not, the kind of musician, if you will. I, I hate calling myself a musician. I'm a rare person who is one that, that you wouldn't know because um, I don't make a big deal out of it in a crowd. But um, uh, I'd given it up. And, what I, and I thought I'd be a journalist, actually. I, I became a music editor of, of the local weekly paper in Houston. And I was like, free records. I get to talk to Sonic Youth and Buck Owens, and I get in shows for free. This is what I'll do. Um, I know. The and first, that's what the, I did. The first 12 months is quite extraordinary. The post comes with a bag of CDs, books. Well, well the back, back this, is, this is the mid to late 80s. So you got to remember, every, it was all happening then. You know, your mailbox every day was full of new great records. Um, you know, SST, uh, you know, all that stuff. Anyway. I thought I would do that, David. Um, but what happened was um, I had met Kim. Uh, I had met Kim in 1986 when, when the Pandora's rolled through Houston. Um, and we hit it off as friends. And um, actually, I met her in Houston. I drove to Austin the next night and saw them again. And that really is where we uh, cemented our, that we were going to be friends. And then my brother lived in Southern California. So I came out two months later, found Kim again. And that's really where we... Um, you know, we hung out like for, I was here for like a month. So we hung out a lot, became friends. It was not romantic at this point, but, um, you know, so I went home and we would write letters. We talk on the phone. I hate to sound like a documentary, but you know, there was no internet there. Uh, you know, um, you know, we'd send each other mail and stuff and, um, we became friends. And what happened was three years later in 89 Pandora's the heavy metal Pandora's rolled through town again. Um, and that's when it became romantic. So that's, after that, I came out here, we hung out, we decided we we're gonna be a couple. And I went home and, and left everything behind in, in Houston and moved out to, to California for a girl. So, um, My God, so it's yeah. Like a, it's like a Bruce Springsteen song, isn't it? Jesus, <laughs> it that's is. amazing. I, I know, because yeah. with the Pandoras, there was a lot of shift, wasn't there, in the bands, in the band at that stage, you know, depending, Yes, who who the manager was or who the boyfriends. Were. It, it was it, it was the leader. Yeah, yeah. It was Paula. I mean, she ran the show. I mean, so they started as a, as a '60s kind of influence band. They went a little more 
pop 60s when they signed to electra they went a little more pop that that album never came out they got dropped and then she 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 started liking heavy metal um and it's but paula with all these things too too when she went 60s she sold her amazing punk collection when she went heavy metal she sold her sick great amazing 60s collection and um thing was they when they went heavy metal um they had lost their old audience and they didn't gain really a new heavy metal audience. So um, by the time I moved out here and, and the Pandoras are playing, I was watching them play bottom of the bill, these big metal shows where nobody cared or watching them play last at a, a, the coconut teaser to 10 people. I mean, they worked hard and, and Paula was a great songwriter, um, but they, they really lost their way then. And, um, and being Kim's boyfriend and, um, and, uh, you know, Melanie and, and her husband, Larry, were our best friends. You know, I knew how ha- unhappy they were with the direction. I mean, Kim hated it. And, um, you know, and, 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 you know, all this time she wanted to play guitar. She played bass in the Pandora. She had a guitar. She had a band when she was in high school with her then boyfriend. She always wrote songs. She had a four track recorder, um, you know, a cassette thing, C86 related. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. And so she, she was always writing songs. I remember she had me play on a song. She found out I had played bass. So she had me play on a song and stuff. And she always wanted to, to form her own band. Um, so uh, finally things, the, the shit kind of hit the fan with the Pandoras. Um, they had kicked out Melanie. Um, you know, they had a second guitarist. They didn't need keyboards anymore, Paula thought. So they had let Melanie go. And a month later, they were supposed to go to Europe and Paula wanted her boyfriend to go and, and he couldn't go. So that tour got canceled literally two days before they were going to leave. And that's when Kim's quit the band. And I remember at the time, I'm always weird about change and stuff. I'm like, you can't quit. What do you mean? And she's like, no, no, we'll have our own band. I mean, even before this, me and Kim had gone and, and auditioned this drummer, um, a guy named Murdoch, who I have no idea uh, if he's around or, or who. Where, I don't know how we found him. <laughs> But we actually went and played with this guy. Um, um, and, and so, you know, the seeds for, for, for Kim having her own band were, were, were planted before she left the, the Pandoras. Yeah, so I, I think that, you know, like with most bands, they, there is a sort of a, na- a time and a narrative, which, you know, having done this show for a long time, I've got it down to five years, you know. <laughs> in this country, you know, there's the sort of, like I said, in the 80s, there was a lot of kind of a lot of kids were just unemployed because it was like, well, that's quite a cool thing to do. And you didn't yeah. feel like you're wasting time. You just thought yeah, society had forgotten me, really. And, you know, you get that sort of single, you know, if you hopefully hadn't smoked too much dope and drunk too much. And John Peel would give it a play. Then you got the John Peel session, which was four tracks with in the Maid of Ale studios at the BBC with someone like Dale Griffith, who was the the drummer with Mott the Hoople. And then you got the kind of the yeah. album, that little tour around the country, playing all these little clubs and things going well. But then the second album, and, and by then the band were like, and there was no money. And also the other yeah. thing from the UK that I, I didn't realise, that any band going to America would often come back and go, and then we broke up, because America seems to just destroy most British bands. We just, have, we just don't have the stamina for that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it, it's it was intimidating for the English band coming coming over here and being like, "Wow, New York is what is here and LA is way over there." And in between, it's it's a it can be a little weird. <laughs> yes, well, yeah. I'm, well, interesting. I did an interview with Miles Copeland, and he said that the police 
you know, just briefly, he said the most important gig was in America in front of four people, but one of them was a, a kind of not a big DJ, but a kind of a bit of a DJ. And, and that kind of elevated the band to be on the sort of radar of A&M records. And it was like, but if it hadn't been for that one gig, you know, they would have not sort of taken off. So it was like, blimey, that was, that was quite something, really. But yeah, you never know. Interesting. But then, you know, in this country, in 87, the Smiths break out, which huge. And then Ecstasy comes along. And then the next generation of kids, you know, want their soundtrack. And it's kind of pretty ravey at this stage. So you've got all those kind of slightly acid, um, you know, and the Happy yeah. Mondays had gone into a bit of rave and the Primal Scream and Soup Dragons. And then you had all those like, DJs like Guy Called Gerald and, and, and sort of Balearic Beat. So how did that, did that, you know, those changes in music, but then you also got, you know, Sonic Youth had gone from SST records to, I don't know, Warner Music or WEA. And then there was the kind of the grunge scene and then Seattle sort of took off about 1990, really, though Bleach had come out the year before. Did that, was that something that was kind of really on your radar at that stage? Um, at, not, not the ravey stuff you mentioned. I, I didn't. I, I didn't care for that stuff at all. But um, you know what was, you know what was hugely influential. It's funny because I thought, you know, as I said, me and Kim were a couple. I was taking her to see all these bands, which is funny now. Um, I took Kim to see Swans. I took her to see Kings X. Like all these bands that she, you know, wouldn't like. But I'll, I'll tell you what. What she did like that I really loved was that scene. Um, those bands like the Primitives and the Darling Buds and. Um, Voice of the Beehive, um, loved all those bands. And, the, and it's, it's not said a lot, Primitives were actually a big influence on, on us forming the Muffs. Uh, I remember me, me and Kim wanted to, we wanted to, to cover really stupid. Um, we, I took her to see them. We, we saw them two nights in a row. Like um, they dedicate, this is a funny story. We saw the Primitives in Long Beach and I, I got their autographs after the show. I was wearing a Mud Honey shirt. And I kind of mentioned, we're gonna be at the Roxy tomorrow. And, um, and I, rec I have this on tape. Um, the next night at the Roxy, they come out for the encore and they say, this song, Tracy Tracy says, this song's dedicated to Mr. and Mrs. Mudhoney. And that was me and Kim. So yeah, that, that, that fuzzy guitar with the, with the melodic pop song underneath yeah. it. I mean, that, that, was, that was a big in influence on the Muffs. And yeah, um, I love the sub pop stuff. I, I had an advanced tape of Bleach before it came out. I saw, I saw the four piece Nirvana here at Alice Bar with, with, 40 people you know the week before bleach came out so i loved all those bands um and 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 yeah when when the muffs formed we formed in late 1990 our first show was was january 1991 um and yeah we grunge was was a big influence on us we we you know we were our early lineup was very noisy very fuzzy um often way too loud um <laughs> And, and we would throw our instruments around and, you know, Kim would hit me with a guitar and that's all grunge influence. You know, that's all doing, you know, being natural. And, yes. And, you know, we had a lot of feedback and, you know, and, 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 and to be fair, um, the, the, the quick ascent of our band is totally, you know, post grunge, post Nirvana, you know, we got snapped up in that whole after Nirvana thing. I mean, uh, we were talking to Warner Brothers Records seven months after our first show, you know, like, um, you know, we, we, we didn't, I, I'm proud of this. It, we did not have a, we had gone in to make our first two seven inches by that point, but we didn't have a demo tape. We didn't have a manager. We didn't have anything. Like 
we played our first show and the ball, it just snowballed very quickly. We started getting more shows and more shows and, and better shows. And um, people, people latched onto our band super quickly. Um, yes, absolutely. Because your first, as, your first two singles, was that New Love and Guilty? Yeah, yeah, exactly. We, we recorded them at the same time, but they came, one came out on Simply for the Record Industry and one came out on um, A Go-Go in Australia. Um, we knew both those, uh, both those guys and, and, and you know, Mel Melanie's husband, Larry, uh, at the time, Larry Hardy, he runs a label called In the Red Records, which uh, you might have heard of. Um, and Larry, Larry, Larry knew all these people, you know, he knew Bruce at a go-go. So, so yeah, we had, we had these guys ready to, to put out these seven inches. And then the, uh, and then we actually got a sub pop. We'd actually signed to Warner Brothers um, and we, we got the offer to do the sub pop single and Warner Brothers knew that it was a good move. So we little known, little known at the time, but we were already signed to a major label when we did our sub pop single. Blimey, you did yeah. move very fast, didn't you? There was kind of yeah. everything just because it is all about timing. I know from various people I've spoke to and some were like, oh, actually, we were just two years too early before a scene that really it was kind of waiting. You know, there was a guy called Richard, Richard Strange from the Doctors of Madness who said that oh, yeah. he, he was two years too early for punk. But everybody in the audience were like, oh, went on to form punk bands because they were quite young kids. And he was like 25 and felt like. Oh, we've been doing this a bit too long, haven't we? And it's like, oh, only the right. stamina. But you were obviously at the right place at the right time. And also you had a bit of a crossover though, didn't you, with the Muffs? Because at that, then in the UK, we had Britpop that came along, which people loved, you know, a certain aesthetic as well as a certain sound, wasn't it? Guitars, a lot of those C86 bands, you know, the audience, young kids went on to form, you know, those Britpop bands and sort of clear up well, sort of financially did quite well, probably. Depends what the record right. but, um, <laughs> Yes, but you, yes, but you managed to cross over from the, because a lot of those grunge bands didn't age well, did they? And when you look at clips of them now, it's really hideous because they've got the hair, they've got the beat, they've got the singing about their stepfather living in small town America. It's just. Yeah, I, well, I mean, with any scene, you're going to have the good, you're going to have the top of the heap and then you're going to have the, the ones that are, that are not so good. So yeah, Sub Pop's got it more than its fair share of records that aren't so great. I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, band, bands like Cat Butt and, you know, love, I, I don't want to slag bands really. No, no. <laughs> yeah, Love Battery, you know, Green Apple, Quick Step, all these bands, you know, kind of went for it, um, you know, with mixed results. But, uh, Very mixed results, actually. And <laughs> yeah, even yeah. some of the even some of the big plays, they look a bit of a caricature with the sort of the Jack Daniels and the. Well, the, yeah, by the yeah, and by the time some of those bands signed, like bands like the Fluid and Tad, I mean their, you know, their their best work was behind them on Sub Pop and other labels. You know what I mean? Yes. So, so with the, did you have your first album? Did that feel like a real honeymoon period? Because it was a a big lineup of people weren't them there's a big lineup well absolutely i mean uh as you can tell david i'm a fan <laughs> i'm a music fan first and foremost so so me falling into this band um and becoming a musician was i was always just every step of the way i was i was just wow we have a seven inch wow we signed to warner brothers wow we're playing you know this big show um with you know Bad religion. We're, you know, um, I, you know, we're we're in the studio, Sound City, where Tom Petty and it, where Heaven Tonight was made by Cheap Trick. You know, so I, I was, 
you know, yeah. we're recording next to Masters of Reality. I'm walking, I'm talking to Ginger Baker, who, who was pleasant by day three, by the way. He was nice. We got on a good basis with him. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, every step of the way, I was just blown away. So, yeah, yeah, to, to be on the major label and fall into the, uh, the, the right hand. Um, and there's a lot of good stories about that, too. Like, like, like when we signed to Warner Brothers, um, we had two A&R guys, which is unusual. So, so David Katznelson is the one who found us and, and signed us. And Dave, Dave was a young guy. He just become a full fledged A and R guy. He had helped sign the Flaming Lips, but but his boss Roberta got the credit. But his first full fledged signing was Mud Honey, and and after after Nirvana, everyone wanted Mud Honey, right? Um, yes. And 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 so he signed us, and he brought on um, Rob Cavallo, and and Rob before us, Rob was a heavy metal guy. Rob had signed a band called Sister Whiskey before us. Um, you know, he had signed the, the, the Metal Blade label, right? Um, after us, he signed a band called Green Day, and the rest is history. But anyway, uh, <laughs> yes. uh, uh, yeah, so we had two A&R guys, and, and, and it, was, it was a really good mix. We made our first record with those guys. And, 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 and while they were figuring out what to do with us, you know, what, 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 what Warner label we'd be on. I mean, we, Madonna had started Maverick Records, and we had a, her manager, Freddie DeMann, who also managed Michael Jackson, came to our little rehearsal spot place, and Madonna had our demo tape making body of evidence up in Oregon. And, and like I said, we we're having meetings with Ian Copeland at his house, like, like all these people were trying to, uh, you know, to, to work with us. Yes. Um, Warren Entner from, from uh, the grassroots. He was a big manager at the time. He, we had a meeting with him, um, you know, so, so, you know, we, for that record and, and subsequent the subsequent records as well, we we I don't have any of those stories like, oh, the label wanted to hear more demos and blah blah blah. I mean, if you listen to that first record, for better or worse, we threw everything we recorded on that record. It's got an angry Samoans cover. It's got a little dumb thirty second instrumental. It's got, you know, it, it, for better or worse, it could it could lose a few songs to be honest. But 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 you know, it's got. <laughs> It's got a couple of grunge songs that sound a little dated, but you know, um, um, for better or worse, they let us do what we wanted. And, 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 and that's quite amazing actually. So, so, you know, it, Warner Brothers was great. You know, we spent 125 grand making that record. I mean, it's unbelievable. Um, wow, that is unbelievable yeah. as well. And was it, and was for people like Melanie, um, yeah, it was huge come from sort of the Pandoras. Was that kind of a honeymoon yeah. period for her being able to sort of be in a band without Paula? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, you know, Kim and Melanie were, were, were playing new instruments. I mean, uh, for Melanie, it was really a new instrument. I mean, I know she dabbled a bit on guitar uh, on a song or two on stage with the Pandoras, but, um, you know, they, they picked up new... When we, when we formed our band, uh, we actually asked Roy, who became our, our drum, our real, became our drummer. Um, we asked, and Roy was just out of Red Cross and, and stuff. Um, we asked Roy to be the drummer and 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 when we formed the prospect of a band of two Pandoras picking up new instruments and one of their boyfriends playing bass was not the handsomest offer. Yes. Um, the, the ex Pandoras thing did us no good in the beginning of our band. We actually had to overcome that. Um, and it didn't take long where people didn't even mention that band anymore, but um, yeah, you know, it, it, it was kind of a honeymoon period for all of us, for all of us, but yeah, definitely for those two um, because our band was doing well. Um, we were doing what we wanted to do. Um, you know, the girls were playing guitars and, and yeah. 
Things so, were, so when you were in, when yeah. you were doing going into the, doing the second album, was there a little bit of kind of the sound shifting? Because there was you lose quite a few members of the first lineup, don't you? Yeah. Well, we we lost our our original drummer after the very first tour uh, um, for our first record. I mean, Chris literally quit two months after that album came out. Um, you know, and and you know, without going too much because it would take all the time we have. Um, Chris. <laughs> Chris was Chris was a little older than us, and he was he was very volatile. Um, uh, as I always say, Chris was almost out of the band the whole time he was in the band. I mean, uh, you know, he would take his shirt off and talk a lot. He 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 wasn't exactly like the, the other three of us. So um, yeah, so he quit. Um, and, and then um, yeah, and and with Melanie, I mean, um, you know, uh, uh, Things just kind of went south with uh, basically, um, well, Kim and Melanie, you know, weren't getting along so well. Maybe the last year Melanie was in the band. Um, and, and, you know, besides maybe some personal issues that crept up, there was, a, you know, the fact that um, we had a second guitar that was cranked to 11 um, that, that just, we had some really bad, we had some really um, questionable sounding uh, shows in that era. Like I, like I said, like, especially after we got signed, I mean, the, the amps got bigger and stuff. So, so um, you would look at the crowd and they would just be still. And, and, and I knew like, they're still because they're just hearing, you know, something that's beyond my bloody Valentine level uh, <laughs> volume and they can't discern a song under this. And, um, yeah, they, and so um, everything just kind of fell apart with that, and 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 basically, Rob, you know, Rob, who was, well, we were all set to make our second record, and and um, it came down to the fact where where um, uh, Kim was going to play all the guitars on the record, and 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 uh, you know, Melanie quit the band when, when she yes. heard about it, so so we became a three piece, and um, you know, we thought we would, we thought we'd. We we're going in to make Blonder and Blonder, so we knew we could make the record as a three-piece. Um, but we thought we'd get a fourth member. Um, and what happened was, while we were recording during the period of recording, we got offered a gig uh, opening for Green Day, who who had come out and gotten big by this point at the Hollywood Palladium. And we were like, "Well, we can't turn this down. Why don't we try it as a three-piece?" So we 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 did a club gig, um, you know, unbilled. Not that we were any big deal, but just to, you know. We just did a low, a, a no pressure club gig, and then we did this big gig at the Hollywood Palladium, and it was kind of instantly like, "Wow, this this kind of works as a three as a three piece." It actually, uh, yeah, you miss the other guitar at times, but but it actually opens up a lot. It sounds it 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 actually sounds better. There's actually more power in it, um, oddly enough. Um, so from then on, we were a three piece. So yeah, we. We, and we stayed that lineup, me, Kim, and Roy, for the rest of our, you know, the, the next 26 years. Yes, I saw, Until I Kim passed at, away. You looked at uh, Jimi Hendrix and The Police and various other bands, Cream, and thought, can work. It does work. Yeah, it? yeah. No, no, looking back, I mean, Sting is like, if people ask about what I play bass like, Sting. I mean, Sting is right there in the pocket. He's not playing things that stick out necessarily. Um, and uh, yeah, I, Sting. I play like Sting, David. 
<laughs> well, I mean, you know, I yeah. mean, the guy does deliver. And then, I mean, I know probably every you probably hate this bit, but everyone must mention your big, yeah, you know, the the sort of the single, the cover that you do, which kind of hits oh. sort of gold dust. So, um, yes, sorry about that. But, no. <laughs> so, how did that sort of? Because obviously, I'm of that generation who we loved Kim, uh, Kim Wilde, not Kim Deal. Yes. Well, we did love Kim yeah. Gordon as well, but. That's just yes. in, the, in the 80s, isn't it? Um, <laughs> yeah, God, I don't know, Kim. Great name. Yeah, so, Our Kim so, as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, you're Kim, I know. It's, um, I know, it's funny. I've never met a real Kim in, well, I've never met a Kim in real life, but I've met them, I'm just babbling now, aren't I? But it just in bands, <laughs> in bands from the 80s. So look, yeah, yeah so, so why, why, what happened? Was it just because of the soundtrack? Yeah, uh, what happened was we were, uh, we were on the road for Blonder and Blonder, and we got offered uh, Amy Heckerling, the director of Clueless, um, who also directed Fast Down to Ridgemont High. Always wanted to work with her. Um, uh, she asked us to do her. Her daughter knew knew our band. Uh, that's how she found out about us, and uh, she got in touch with our management. You know, she got in touch with us and offered us two songs. So uh, it was either Kids in America or All by Myself by Eric Carmen. Um, great song, but. Uh, Obviously, uh, we couldn't really see how we were going to do all by myself. Um, Postscript, Jewel ended up doing all by myself before she was a star, and that song didn't even make the soundtrack. Um, right. So, so yeah, so we did. We recorded Kids in America in New York City on tour. We did it at, at Electric Lady Studios, the house, the studio Jimmy built, and um, yeah, we did it over three nights. We scheduled a day off or got a day off, extra day off somehow, and um, did that song. And um, you know. Uh, to be honest, it's not a bad subject with us. We though we never played the song until the 20th anniversary years later, uh, which we can get to that. But uh, uh, um, uh, yeah, we, we we worked up that we worked up that arrangement and recorded it, and um, and the song became the theme of Clueless. Like, and, and it's the first song on the record. I've got a platinum record over here for it, um, and it and it it endures. It, it plays at sports events, and 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 I hear I heard it at a restaurant the other day. Um, you know, and it's great to have something like that, that I can sit in the, I can meet a stranger on a plane and I can, I, I can point out something that, that he might not have heard of us, but he's going to know a song that, that we did. Yes. Too, I know. too bad we didn't write it. I, we, we wrote, we bought Kim Wilde a house. I'd love to meet her one day. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> yes, I guess that's yeah. it. So, so with the, like those type of arrangements, you don't sort of go, oh my God, like Nick Lowe did, um, I don't know, what's so funny about Peace, Love and Understanding, which kind of goes on the soundtrack to something like The Bodyguard, I think yes. that one, and, you know, though yeah. Elvis has recorded it and that's his version, you know, Nick Lowe just goes, right, the rest of my life is going to be quite different. Oh, I, you know, yeah. No, 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 set for life after that. I mean, I think The Bodyguard's the biggest soundtrack of all, selling soundtrack of all time. Yeah. So. He can now do experimental albums till he dies. So, um, and it doesn't matter, does it? So is it the case with something like that? You just go, wow, we're very popular, but that didn't really do much for the bank balance. Um, yeah, well, that's true. Because, uh, and the thing is, it, it was never a proper single because the soundtrack was on Capitol. We were on Reprise, Warner Brothers, and the labels couldn't get it together to kind of figure out how to promote us. Um, because, that's just label stuff, right? Like, like you know, Capital wasn't gonna, you know, promote this band that went on their label, blah blah blah. So, um, so yeah, I mean, uh, you know, 
know, in a way, I, I don't I don't look at it as a bad thing. I mean, yeah, we got paid like a flat fee, and but you know, I get performance royalties from it, so which are not, you know, which are fine. Um, again, if we'd written it, I would I would probably not even be talking to you, David. I'd be living on a house in the hills, in a um, in, in, on an island somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> even though, yeah, yeah, you wouldn't you wouldn't have the picture of Joe Jackson behind you. You'd right, have... right, exactly. But it never, there was never any real backlash um, other than like keep some, some people would come to gigs thinking we were going to play that song. And we never, the thing was, we, we tried to, we would try to rehearse it and we'd get to that chorus and we just, we couldn't, it's a, look, it's a great song. I love the song, but, but, but uh, Muff songs are, are, they might sound simple, but for the most part, Muff songs are, are, are they got a lot, they got, there, there's a lot of stuff going on. Um, and kids in America is a little dumber is the wrong word, but, but it's a little just more normal than, 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 than your standard Muff song. So we, we never played it live until uh, 20 years later. I guess I could tell the story now because we won't get back to it. 20 years later, we got asked if we do press for the 20th anniversary of Clueless. It's coming out on vinyl. This is six years ago, whatever it was. Um, and so... Um, we got asked to do a TV appearance on a VH1 morning show. So we actually had to, well, we couldn't turn that down. So we had to uh, learn the song and finally play it live. And, and we started playing it live in that era. Um, and actually people would go nuts. It's like, wow, we have this big hit single that we never, you know, and people would Instagram it and stuff. Um, but I got a funny story about that, David. Um, um, so I'd never gotten this, this gold record for Clueless. I had managers try to do it. They never could do it, whatever. So 20 years later, I'm talking to this publicist. I'm like, I got a great idea. Kim Wilde presents us with our gold record and uh, it'd be great press. And she's like, well, first off, Ronnie, it's gone platinum now. And secondly, she lives in England. So, but I, I don't know, good idea. Anyway, we got offered to do this TV show. I remind her again, I go, I got a great idea. We get, we get presented with our platinum records on this TV show and, um, she didn't say anything, and we're, we're getting interviewed by Nick Lachey from 98 Degrees on the show. And I see the box, and we got presented with our platinum records on this morning VH1 show, and I held it above my head, and we all got records, and that show got canceled about a month later. So thank God I said something, or I've not had this platinum record. So. Yes, well, it's, <laughs> nice, it's nice to have it in, in the bag, actually. So, yeah. yes, that, that's, quite, that's quite a nice little bit of closure. And you never met Kim Wilde, have you? Never matter yet but I, I she seems lovely and and i would love to if you can make that happen uh david one of these days that would be magic <laughs> it would be a fairy tale wouldn't it yeah. so look you then get into the third album which is often really tricky because i did i remember interviewing paul from the primitives and also dave from the mighty lemon drops and they got to that point where either their third fourth or possibly fifth album came out and it was a bit like they were really struggling with keeping it together but what was your the atmosphere like in the band when you were recording the the next album the, the, the oh it was uh yeah it, it was great because um just going back to blonder a bit that, that like i said green day had gotten big and green day um signed to they signed with our a and r guy rob because they liked our first record so so when green day signed they took our a and r guy our producer our booking agent our managers all our business people and you know god love them they got huge so so blonder and blonder came out in the wake of that and so that was our that was our big swing, right? We, we worked with Green Day's radio people. We used Green Day's video director, spent 60 grand on the video for Sad Tomorrow. Um, you know, and we didn't, we, didn't, we didn't get on the radio, but that record is our best-selling record. Um, 
you know, in our case, our, our second record, you know, was, was stronger than the first record. Hmm. Um, and so by the time I got to the third record, um, you know, we'd gone past the blonder and, and, you know, we didn't sell hundreds of thousands of, of, of units. Um, but uh, Kim wrote a, uh, an amazing batch of songs. Happy Birthday to Me is, is our the favorite record of all three of us that we ever made. Um, and, and, and basically what happened was Rob was so busy that, that, that Kim kind of produced, it says produced by the Musk, but it's produced by Kim. Uh, they left us on our own. So we're in this big studio next to Eric Clapton, um, you know, uh, Ocean Way, making our third record. And, and, and uh, again, nobody's breathing down our necks. Uh, it was a great batch of songs, in my opinion. And um, it, it, it came out just how we wanted, wanted to sound. I mean, um, you know, in retrospect, we, we might not have worked with trendy producers or radio mixers or whatever, but, but the, the, the records um, sound fairly uh, timeless, you know, um, it's all about the song. So there's no, there's no trendy production on Happy Birthday to Me. That gets a little more stripped down, but, but I think it's our strongest set of songs. Yes. So, and how was it dynamically? Because I know with, I did an interview with um, actually two members of the Galaxy 500, and there was obviously Dean and the other two. And Dean's obviously, you know, the other two are a couple, and but Dean is the yeah. writer of the band. So when it came to decision making and voting, you know, obviously it was interesting. You could see the band weren't going to last long. So how did you, yeah. how did it cope with the Muffs having, you know, a relationship within a three-piece band? Uh, well, I always, rec I always knew this was special. Um, while we were around, um, especially as it got on, but 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 me and Kim and Roy uh, got along great. It was not. I read Dean's book. Uh, he doesn't sound like the easiest guy to get along with. Um, <laughs> I might take Damon and Naomi's side on that one. Um, but but we, you know, of course we had our flare-ups or whatever. But in the amongst the three of us, we would squash them immediately. So there was none of that lingering. You know, I hate this person. Blah blah blah. Like um, you know, uh, me and Kim being a former couple. We broke up before the recording of our first record, so so. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 that said, we were doing so well. We'd sign. Me and Kim had a. We talked. We we're like, look, we got to make this work out. We got to save our friendship. And um, that said, we we had a. There were some uncomfortable moments in the van uh, for the other members because we knew how to piss each other off and stuff. But <laughs> but yeah, that that said, by the time of the third record, yeah, we we were, we were we were well oiled at that point. Um, uh, the thing was, yeah, that, that we we knew pretty immediately after it came out, though, that we were going to get dropped. Uh, in fact, we got dropped probably three months after the record came out. Um, that said, we did get tour support. We did tour uh, that record. We played bigger gigs. You know, we headlined the film more uh, on that tour. Um, you know, so so we did we did do okay. We didn't make it to Europe again. Uh, we did play in England, David. Uh, uh in 93 and 95 um and i gotta say we always played london and it was amazing all our shows in london we played the camden falcon we played the uh camden underworld quite a few times right. always great gigs right like beer flying the english crowds were just so lively and great and the singer of chaos uk jumping on stage and singing in my mic and <laughs> you know and so so in 95 when we went back we're really excited we're like we're gonna play leeds and manchester right we're like oh well these will be great we know these towns they're big towns yeah live at leeds very exciting we're booked in a place called the duchess of york sounds classy on a saturday night it's gonna be great 
well, we play Leeds to like 20 people. Um, <laughs> and then the pubs let out and we almost got our asses kicked by these people that got out of the pubs that were drunk. Um, so anyway, uh, yes, the Duchess, we never made it, it back to England. Yeah. yeah, we sadly never a... made it back to England after that. Right. Oh, that's a bit of a shame, isn't it? So yeah. then, as we struggled on to the millennium and, and slightly yeah. worried about the millennium bug, you were dropped. So then was the, was the band having an existential sort of moment as well as, I mean, 10 years now, this is quite a, this is a long period of time. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. No, we, 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 we plugged along as normal for the next record, which is called Alert Today, Alive Tomorrow. It came out in 1999. We got, we got signed by Fat Mike from North X for, at, to Fat Records. And, um, and what happened, we turned in the record and he's like, I thought you'd make a fast like record. He described it as fast. We never heard anything like this in our life. Um, he's like, I'm like, have you heard our other records? He's like, yeah, I know. He was very cool, but he's like, so we came out on this, this subsidiary called Honest Don's, which had kind of poppier stuff. And so, yeah, we, we did another tour. It was kind of like business as usual. Two years later, new record, tour the States again. Um, and then um, the next record came out in, in five years later. Uh, and that one, we kind of paid for ourselves. Uh, our friends, Anna Warnker from That Dog and Charlotte Caffey from The Go-Go's uh, put it out on their label. And uh, again, we did another nationwide tour. Uh, it was five years later. We took our time a little bit making that one. Um, during all these breaks too, we're, we're still working. We're still going to Japan. We're still playing West Coast dates. We're still playing Los Angeles. Um, yeah, but really, really happy comes out. We did the nationwide tour and that's where things, that's when we kind of took um, almost a four year break and it was not planned. That's when we kind of took our breath as you're kind of alluding to, because yes. we've been doing it. We've been doing it for, uh, yeah, over 10 years at that point. Um, so yeah, it, we, we, there was no great, you know, meeting, like we're going to take a break. We were all friends still. We just, uh, we still talked during that period. Um, but yeah, we just kind of took this break. And what got us kind of back again was we got an offer to go to Spain. Um, so 04, so this would have been like 08, maybe late 08, early 09. Um, we got an offer to go to Spain. We've not been to Spain since 19, 1995. We went to Spain and it went just splendidly. Like, um, uh, in fact, ever since we came back at that point and continued till the end of, uh, you know, uh, Kim's active career um our shows were big love fests like people were the crowds were so happy to see us and you know in foreign countries people are crying in our presence i know it's hard to believe um yeah amazing. You know, but a lot of love in the, in the crowd and, and and we really became a better band than we ever were uh at the end of our career so yeah that led to making a record and and we made whoop de doo we worked on that for a long time and uh and uh Basically, it was finished even a year before uh, Kim joins the Pixies. Um, so, yeah, that was funny. Uh, Kim and Roy, they know I got a big mouth. I like to gossip. So, so Kim was in the Pixies for like eight months before they announced it officially. And so, and, and Roy knew a couple months prior that we have this Muffs meeting because we have whoop de doo We're trying to figure out what to do with it, how we're going to put it out. And we have this meeting and Kim's like, okay, I'm in the Pixies. So what we're going to do, and, and I'm like, wait, 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 what? you're in the Pixies? Yeah, I'm in the Pixies. So what's going to happen is we're going to, I'm going to do this tour. And blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So uh, we had that little uh, side jag. And um, yeah, when Kim joined the Pixies, basically she toured, she did three big tours um, with them. 
uh, and before they they let her go. Um, and to be honest, Kim, they, they had a whole nother year of touring they had planned too. So Kim was looking at these, these, these dates and thinking like, I don't know how I'm gonna do this because um, again, band dynamics, um, the Pixies weren't the friendliest band to be in. Uh, Kim had all sorts of stories. Just, they just, I remember she posted a video of them um, in, in the van and it's complete silence. And Kim's got the camera on her face. I remember commenting like, wow, it's not like that in our vehicle. Like <laughs> we're just constant chatter. And um, again, it's a family thing. Like like uh, the three of us and the Muffs were, uh, you know, it was a true family. And, you know, in the Pixies, they might be playing bigger gigs. They might be staying in five-star hotels and flying first class, but it was not as fun for her. Um, was she kind of know, slightly rolling her eyes in a, oh my God, this is like... Just things, I mean, yeah, yeah. Things, I mean, everything was, there's a lot of hype about that. She staged over whatever. That happened at like the third gig she did with them. Um, and yeah, there's an English manager who would tell her, you know, Pixies, don't do that, you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, she had to play this, this, uh, these, these bass pedals on one of their new songs, um, which she, you could see her on these TV appearances, like Jules Holland, scowling as she's hitting these bass pedals. Um, you know, um, again, huge, we're all, we're all huge Pixies fans, and, and Kim was too. Um, but yeah, it was not, the funnest thing for for her and, no. and i'm not just saying that retroactively um because kim was if nothing if not genuine um kim kim no nobody said and did what she wanted more than any, than kim of anyone i've ever known in my life so so kim did not do things she didn't want to do um so yeah so so and, what uh, we do yeah Go i was going to say were you able to sort of have music as your full-time occupation did you have to sort of supplement that or were you able to just about keep going just on the on playing live and, and yeah no no uh yeah no no I uh I uh started work I, I you know I went 10 years the, the major label years uh and a little beyond without having a day job and then um yeah I I started working um in a record store and um which is what I used to do when I was a kid and uh it's what I still do so yeah, but the money, uh, most of the money I made from the band, you know, was, was live gigs. We also were lucky enough to have, we had a song in a Fruitopia. It's not around anymore. Fruitopia was like a Snapple type drink made by Coca-Cola. We had a song in a commercial in the late 90s. Um, the 90s also, we had a lot of songs, besides Clueless, we had a lot of our own songs in films and TV shows like Buffy the Vampire Slayer. My God, I and, uh, love that series so much. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, we're, our song's playing in the lair of the evil, evil vampires. Um, <laughs> when Buffy goes to college. Um, yeah, and so, and that stuff was very lucrative in those days. Uh, it's not yes. as much anymore. But so, yeah, we were lucky enough. Back in those days, we ended up on a lot of those contracts because they, they would call Warner Brothers and say, what bands do you have? And, and they'd send them like Mud Honey, Babes in Toyland and us. And we would get the gig because we'd be the band that was more, <laughs> the director could understand so we ended up in a in a uh ivan reitman directed movie called father's day with robin williams and billy crystal in the 90s right, and, uh, yes we did a drew carey hbo special i mean we worked all these kind of media things we were we were in a aaron spelling tv show um so we made money a lot of money like that uh when the video games came out rock band um we they had kids in america on one the next one they wanted out our son outer space from happy birthday to me um and Rock Band was a video game where you play guitar, drums, you know, you probably are semi-aware of it. Yeah. Uh, sold huge numbers, right? And what happened was 
they needed the multi-tracks and we went to find the the master tape so happy birthday to me and found out that that we had checked them out for a, some soundtrack project brought them to a studio owned by chick korea and the tapes were never returned so the master tapes are missing i love this too they called chick korea 20 years later to say do you have these muffs master tapes i'm sure he was like what? i have no idea what the fuck you're talking about um yeah but it turned into a blessing because we re-recorded the song david so we own the version so we made like 40 grand in advance from rock band so so we have had some paydays along the way um, nice you know it's good to hear but, but yeah yeah i did i did um go back to having a day job and 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 that said, working in a record store, um, I was able to have understanding bosses that would let me take time off to go tour when I needed to, or you know, well, I, not yeah, work I mean, a lot, a lot of bands. A I know a lot of bands have had to do that. Like the guy from the Hard On said, you know, when he was in the, in the band when it was really sort of cooking to begin with, so to speak. You know, he would he was studying, and they would just have to cram tours or recording, and then go back and quickly do a bit more studying, and then you know. It was impressive, you know. I think in England we're just a bit more lazy. We just think we can't we can't juggle that much, you know. We just like do one thing or the other, and when I it get doesn't, it. and when it doesn't quite happen, it's like that's the band over, you know. So they don't really sort right. of persevere. That's a sweeping statement, anyway. But um, yeah, it's kind of true. But yeah, so whoop de do, and that that went down well. But that again, that was on another small label, wasn't it? Uh, it was. Um, uh, the the. We got a lot of press for that record though, because of the timing. Uh, it was on, you know, Burger Records, which I know has a, a reputation of sorts these days. But um, at the time, it was a new uh, kind of hip label uh, to be on, and 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 uh, so we ended up on Burger. We hadn't had a record in ten years. Right after Kim's out of the Pixies, all these things make for good press uh, things to talk about. So so there was a bit of hype if you will um but it wasn't on a small label um and that said um it's 2014 so things are selling less and less you know um physically you know just like today um but that said we were able we, we started doing um besides doing these foreign territories which are very which were lucrative for us doing spain doing italy uh doing japan uh doing south america um and then we, we would do fly-ins um, in the States. We'd fly to the East Coast, play um, our beloved uh, home-based Maxwell's in New Jersey, play New York City, play Philadelphia. You know. Did you ever play Vegas? Uh, we, we did play Vegas. Um, uh, we, we, we would do the punk... I, I'm, I'm proud of this in our band. We were able to play punk rock festivals, power pop festivals, garage festivals, um, open for no doubt, open for a heavy metal band. Uh, so yeah, we, we would do the punk rock bowling festival in Classic. Vegas, which you, yeah, you may or may not have heard of. I've heard, um, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they bring big bands, so, you know, Stiff Little Fingers and Angelic Upstarts, as well as bands like us. And yes. Yeah, and, and we go over great. Yeah, yeah, we, uh, we go over great. Um, so... Yeah. yeah, but then, I mean, obviously the work, you know, then we all know that Kim starts to sort of, her health deteriorates quite badly, doesn't it? Yeah, um, and that all happened very quickly. Um, uh, in retrospect, a lot of this is very kind of poetic, um, but we had, in April of, uh, I'm losing track now, four years ago, four years ago, this past April, 
we, we finally made it to South America. We finally made it to Argentina, uh, which have been trying to get us there forever. And, um, and, and Buenos Aires, we played a, a place that held a thousand people um, that were all rabid Muffs fans. Um, and, and, and it's one of those things. It's a curtain. The curtain goes up. My knees buckle at the sound of this crowd. And that's the crowd we're bowing to on the cover of our, our last record, No Holiday. Um, it was that show. So we, we went and did this trip and had four amazing shows with a lot of love, big shows. Um, and a month later, we, we flew up to Vancouver to do another show. And that ended up being our last show. So our final shows were these really amazing, big shows uh, in front of big crowds. And, and you know, and we, we had worked, we had worked steadily for, for a couple of years at this point. So, so we had, we had decided to take the summer off and Kim was going to write, we had a, Kim had already written a batch of songs, but they tend to come in bunches with her. So she was going to write another batch. We're not going to book any gigs during the summer. Um, so we talked, but come August, um, Kim picks me up and we're going to do a podcast in Hollywood. And uh, she tells me, um, we talked about it a little in the car and we talk about it on the podcast and you can hear this. It's kind of eerie in retrospect, but she's telling me how she's having trouble gripping with her left hand. And um, she's going to see doctors and there's all sorts of opinions. Some think it's carpal tunnel. Some think it's a nerve in her neck that's affecting uh, the nerves in her arm. But you hear on this podcast, she's talking about it and you hear her go like, it's going to be okay. These doctors, they, I think they got it figured out. And you hear me say, I'm very concerned. Um, and I was. And, and, and so um, uh, around that time, too, um, a friend of ours, Derek Anderson, had made a record. And Kim and the girls from the Bangles, the Peterson sisters, had played the backing track. And Derek did this backyard, did, did this show with, he wanted to assemble the Peterson sisters and Kim to be his backing band. Well, Kim couldn't play guitar. So she just, shook a tambourine and, 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 and sang mm -hmm. backups. And there's a picture that uh, my friend Steve-O took and he didn't know what he was taking at the time, but it's a picture of her holding her hand up to my face. And you see this look on my face that's just like dead, no expression. And she's holding, it's from the back of Kim. You see her holding the hand up to my, and she's showing me how she can't move her, her hand. Um, and uh, I'll try to keep it together talking about all this. Um, and, and, and ALS, um, and for those of you that might be listening, um, look it up if you don't know what it is. Um, ALS is a disease that basically shuts down your whole body. Uh, you're, 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 you can't move. It takes away your, your, your speech, uh, but your brain is fully, fully on, um, which is perhaps the most inhumane thing about it. Um, so uh, uh, around October, um, she calls me and Roy and she had gotten diagnosed with ALS. ALS ran in her family. Her father passed away from it, her aunt. Um, Kim was always scared of, of getting it because um, it does, it is hereditary of sorts. It doesn't mean you're gonna get it necessarily, but, but um, uh, she calls us crying and she, she's, had a doctor that didn't know her family history say it's likely ALS. And um, uh, God, I'll never forget so many things. I'll never forget that. And, 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 and at that point, uh, we decide 
Kim, Kim says, well, we have to finish this record somehow. I can't, I can't play. At that point, her speech was still there. She's starting to get a little slurry. Uh, we'd actually got offered a show opening for the Dream Syndicate, two shows here in San Francisco uh, at a big place here called the El Rey Theater. Um, and we were going to, we took the shows. They were going to be in December. And uh, we actually agreed to do them. And Kim was just going to sing. And we were going to have our friend Adam play guitar. It was going to be a little different, but she wanted to do it. And um, a month after we booked it and about a month before the shows, uh, Kim had to admit that, that uh, her voice was, was going and she didn't think she was going to be able to do it. And so we canceled the shows. And um, so uh come december we decide we have to make this record and we're gonna have to build it around demos it's gonna have to be i kind of compare it to sid barrett's madcap laughs which mm. they kind of re recorded around these acoustic demos he did um which were some were, and, and and kim's demos um if you hear these kind of deluxe versions of our warner brothers records there's some of kim's demos around there and kim was great at making demos i always wanted to compile a whole record like her scoop if you will because uh, her demos were so good and so fully formed and you know we were a pop band we didn't our songs didn't we didn't jam you know like Soundgarden you know we they were concise and and you know yeah uh, as a band we might work out some arrangement ideas but but you know Kim you know her she was a great songwriter I, I will say uh, as an outsider yeah, um, yeah. so so we had to form these uh and, and for this record, she didn't do that. She'd done these acoustic versions and wanted us to kind of learn them like that. And that's what we were kind of doing. Um, and we were playing some of these songs live already too. Um, we always had new songs live. Uh, but, but yeah, so we went in the studio to record drums to these demos and um, Roy knocked them out in like two days, um, mainly in one day. And so we had, we had these songs and, 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 and so, the disease took over Kim. It moved super quickly. So by March, she could not move or, or speak. Uh, okay. So she had a machine that, that, that was like an iPad that could read her eyeball so she could construct sentences. Um, so, and it would talk for her. Um, I got to say during her illness, Kim, anytime I saw her, she did nothing but smile. I would, I would, I would try to make, I would make her laugh. I, it was my duty to make her laugh. But anyway, that's how she communicated. But she never lost her sense of humor. I'd walk in and the computer voice would say, your girlfriend's got a hairy pussy. You know, and Kim <laughs> would just smile. Um, but that's how she communicated. So, so we assembled this record. Um, Kim oversaw everything. She, she had the, the Pro Tool stuff. She was in one room looking at this big TV screen. And uh, our friend Karen from the Pandoras engineered these overdubs. So me and Karen would be in the other room. I had my bass. And Kim was communicating uh, through the Viber app with this machine so she'd say like do it again that's a little flat you know all the producer type stuff um great job um i love you you know she'll communicate with us yeah yeah and and that's how we constructed this record and 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 um it's amazing that it got done first off and that it came out um as cohesive as it is because some parts so some demos were, were just like a verse and a chorus. So we had to kind of complete a song, kind of repeat parts, um, you know, to make a whole song. Um, all this, it's like trickery. And, um, and so Kim's, that's why Kim's vocals on that, that there, it was what, what she recorded is what, is what 
we had to work with. So um, God, that's, that's why some some of the vocals are recorded better than others. Um, some we had to kind of bring it out more. Some have the acoustic guitar on the same track. So there's all this weird production stuff. But but um, we completed this final work. Um, and Kim, as, as uh, you probably know, was not was not public about her illness. So um, uh, we had to go along like, ah, we're taking a break. We're turning down. We're, tur we're turning down foreign tours and stuff. And oh, we're not touring right now. And, you know, meanwhile, my heart is breaking because I know that my friend and bandmate has this fatal disease. I mean, there's no cure. Um, and it's, I, you know, there's no, so some people that have my, some people have milder systems and, and can go on for years, but it moves so quick with her. Um, yes. Yeah. So, so um, yeah, so we, we we made this record, turned it in, and 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 actually, the press went out. And you know, this being a journalist, um, the press goes out three months before release date. So we had this, we had to have this kind of um, thing. Like, oh, we recorded this record a little differently. We fell in love with the demos and wanted to make it different than our other records. And and um, you know, and 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 you know, hearing it, it's definitely different than our other records. Um, so we had to we had to kind of do that and just uh fate stepped in and kim passed away two weeks before it came out and, and wow. it was already came out but you know i love she did get to see it you know oh we did have physical copies so she did get to see it and, and know it was coming out and was very happy with it we would we would message each other and tell each other how oh, we made a great record you know you know i love this record and so God, that's so emotional, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. No, it so. does. It does kind of remind me a bit of, I suppose, what Tony Visconti and David Bowie were going through in that kind of moment where you know they realised it wasn't good, you know, and they needed to get Black Star done, and you know, it just comes out the day. Yeah. yeah. No, absolutely, absolutely. I, I and and I, that's why I always when I see these bands that are like battling or whatever, like like Cheap Trick with Bunny Carlos, it's like life is short. Like like none of this whatever you're arguing about you know it's usually money or stuff right business stuff but like you know bury the hatchet and and you know try to work it out um yes because you know not, not yes. everybody makes it you know no and yeah. and i'm sure those guys when they're possibly on their deathbed going oh you know i wish i hadn't bothered doing all that stuff <laughs> I, yeah. I wish i'd moved on or just kind of had the conversation and moved on or just moved on <laughs> yeah because yeah. you, you're going to regret it really aren't you absolutely and um yeah i i you know i never would have i i never would have thought i mean our band would be around for i mean i count our band being around until kim the day kim died so we we're around 28 years and, and that's astounding i mean uh to me a, a, a band it's probably because we never had a big hit single, right? We just had this kind of mid-level career. And we just, yes. you know, could fill clubs and, and of people who love us and the people who like us tended to like us a lot. And um, how lucky is that? Uh, most bands would, would, would kill for that kind of career. Well, absolutely. I'm very proud of us. It's very, yeah. it's a very yeah, amazing story. And also, you know, with, with the Pandoras as well, which was a nice little sort of add on as well so um so then when that yeah. album came out obviously that was kind of 2019 then last year yeah. you know easy crazy so how have you been since you know kind of that kind of experience because that was a huge emotional 
bolt, you know, yeah. hurricane. Yeah, I, I also want to say the the response, the, the 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 press and everything after Kim passed away was unbelievable. Like she got tributes from like the Who at the Hollywood Bowl. They put they put pictures of us on the screens, you know, and said rest in peace, Kim. Um, Elvis Costello had a a posting about praising Kim's songwriting. I mean, Kim would have. Kim would have been blown away, like, um, you know, and she got on like big news, like, you know, it's, I, again, I don't know, I said this at her funeral too, I don't know where all these motherfuckers were when they were taking us for granted, but uh, it was <laughs> nice to see, uh, <laughs> but yeah, since then, I mean, you know, the must, that was my, that was my band, I mean, I'm not, again, like I said early on, I'm not, I'm not, you know, gonna place an ad and look for people to play with, if I get an offer that I can't refuse, um, I'll do it. Last year, um, and, and I didn't know him, Ginger Wildheart from the Wildhearts, who you probably know. Um, <laughs> yeah, because um, they're big in it. Yeah, he, I saw he wore a muff shirt. So I just sent him a message saying, you know, honor to have you wear our shirt. I'm a fan. He wrote me, he wrote me back. He's like, what are you, what are you doing these days? I'm like, oh, I'm retired, you know, uh, from music. And he's like, retired? How'd you like to play on a song? And you, if you know anything about Ginger Wildheart, the guy, it's nothing if not prolific. So he had me play on a song. I don't know what it's for. I don't know if it's for a, a, a <laughs> solo record or, or a, you know, but, but I did that last year. So look for that. But, but yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, that was my band. I, I I'm, you know, uh, that's just, that's just the way it is. I I'm, and I'm happy to be retired. It, you know, in, in one respect, I'm happy to be out of the, out of the game at this point. Right. Like I'm not, <laughs> yes. I'm not wondering what gigs I'm going to play, you know, or if I should play this year or next year, you know, mm. I'm going to roll this out. If people are going to come to clubs, I'm not, I'm not really. Concerned. But I guess you do hold the kind of the, the torch, don't you, for the band, you, you, you hold the kind of essence or the, the kind of, kind of, uh, yeah. you have the kind of the baton, don't you? No, no. Uh, uh, me and Roy, Roy is not on social media. So, so I guess I'm kind of, the guy, the more visible member that, that, that does, but um, yeah. And look, I'm proud to do it. I'm proud to do interviews and talk to people. It's still, you know, things still happen. I mean, uh, like this phenomenon with this, this, these, these, the young girls, the Linda Lindas, I don't know if you know about this. Um, they went viral. I mean, this band of, of young girls that grew up on the muffs, there's a picture of them when they were really little, like five dancing in the background of a muff show but they covered one of our songs and a bikini kill song for this movie on Netflix called Moxie. And they did a, a live show from a, from a LA library and they have a song called racist uh, boy, dumb racist boy. It went viral. They got like literally a quarter of a million followers on Instagram, like within like a weekend. And like they got, they signed epitaph and, and, and um, they're young um, Asian American girls that are like 10 that, you know, uh, a big Muffs fan. So, so the Muffs got mentioned in all these articles, like Variety. They got press everywhere. Um, Fantastic. So things still pop up, and things still could pop. You know, you never know. Things. Somebody might call me tomorrow and, and want to use a song in a commercial, or you know. Well, you never I'm, know. So. Yes. Well, as, as as things start to alter again. So look, just kind of almost lastly, I mean, if you could have said something to your 16, 18 year old self, starting out, is there any kind of top little kind of bullet point or bullet points that you would say god yes i would definitely have told them that do this or don't do that or that's good and that wasn't such a great idea um 
I, I would have said you have quite a ride ahead of you and, and you're not going to believe what's going to happen uh, because it's true. I, I yeah. never, I never thought I'd be in a band for almost 30 years that would be working. I never thought any of this would happen. I, I, I didn't know what I was going to do. Uh, I knew I'd probably be in music. I, I always assumed I'd be a, a, a guy working at a label, a behind the scenes guy. So yes. no, I would tell, I would tell my 16 year old self that, uh, you were gonna, you were gonna have a life continuing to do what you love and 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 appreciate what you love, and and you're gonna meet your idols, and you're gonna have, you know, people from Cheap Trick know who you are, and and and, you know. Yes, well, absolutely, and and. Give yes, myself I, a big smile and a hug, and yeah. Well, it has turned out. I mean, it's really sad about Kim and the illness. Obviously, that's horrendous. But I mean, some of them. Um, knowing that you've been sort of loved by people like Elvis Costello, who we love. And uh, it's just amazing, really. So, who um, knew? I know, I know. Kim would have just, if she didn't pass away when she did, she would have passed away at that because Elvis Costello <laughs> is everything yeah. to all of us, you know, for so many years. Yeah, so he even named a couple of our songs. So I know he really was listening. <laughs> yes well absolutely so, well yeah. Elvis is, is quite the fan this is great well look thank you ever so much for this this has been amazing and I'm just really grateful that you you know gave me the time so if you want I can absolutely. always give you kind of a link to the interview and then you can always post it on your social media site if you um so wish no absolutely David I'm a big fan I'm proud to be uh, amongst the, the people you've interviewed you interviewed some of my idols I can't, I'm astounded at some of the guests you get I'm sure you are too <laughs> so Yes, yeah. I know. God, I know, this is amazing. But look, but that's great. Well, I'll let you get on. But thank you again for this. And look, all the best. And, you know, amazing story. And it started with Elvis. It started yeah. with Elvis. Yeah, Elvis, both Elvises, so prominent. Thank you, David. Thanks for having me. Yeah, take care. Thanks a lot. Take care. See you. Okay, all right. Bye-bye. There you go. That is how you end a conversation. I love leaving that in, bit in at the end, just for... It just amuses me to hear it. Somebody, myself, squirming. Anyway, look, a massive thank you to um, Ronnie Burnett from The Muffs. And um, yes, just marvellous. That's all I've got to say. Um, anyway, thank you also for listening. If you still are, well done. You get a house point. But uh, this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show and keep it positive. Otherwise, don't bother. Um, and also, yeah, all these interviews have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. It's true. Anyway, that's it. Have a good week. Stay safe. <laughs>